The incarnation is the doctrine that God became man. That Jesus, when he came, was God in human flesh. And this doctrine of the incarnation, that reality, is a place of perpetual wonder. It's a place where we think about how God could become man and we are lost in thought as we think about how that could actually be, what that would look like and what it would be like to interact with such a man, one who was perfectly holy and perfectly God. It produces many questions and it causes us to ponder and to wonder at this amazing reality. We have a propensity to be curious about this one who was completely God and completely man, and particularly how that one would live as a baby or as a child. What would it be like to see a little child who was God and yet man? And yet, for all of our curiosity, for all of our wonder and questions, the Bible is almost completely silent about this stage of the God-man. But today, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Luke as he is telling the narrative of how the God-man came to earth. As Luke here bridges the gap between the infancy of Jesus to his adult ministry, he gives us one little vignette of Jesus' developing understanding of himself as the God-man. And so in this passage, we're going to be... Uh, Looking at Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, invite you to turn there if you haven't already, Luke chapter 2, starting in uh, verse 41, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Again, this is the only place in the Bible that describes Jesus in his childhood, in his boyhood. Luke chapter 2, verse 41, reads this. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when the, his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In this passage, we're going to learn five details about Jesus. Five details about Jesus that show him to be the God-man. We're going to see this interplay between Jesus as completely human and Jesus as completely God played out in this passage before us. 
You see, he wasn't mostly God and a little bit human. He wasn't mostly human and a little bit divine. He was the God-man. The Word became flesh who dwelt among us. And this text affirms this truth for us. So the first detail that we see uh, in this text is about Jesus is that uh, is his normal childhood. The first detail is his normal childhood. Now, this point is not expressly uh, given in any one verse, but is more the background, really, to this passage. You see, the New Testament, as we've said, gives very little description about the childhood of Jesus. But we can surmise some points about the boyhood, his boyhood, from records about how Jewish families would have lived. But the main point that I want us to get, to get uh, here in this, uh, in this first detail is that Jesus' boyhood was normal. Even though he was heaven-sent, even though he was completely God, he grew up as a normal Jewish boy. You see, the Bible gives no indication that Jesus did anything supernatural or, or, or non-human-like during his growing up years. He didn't perform any miracles. He didn't uh, do certain things that people would have been wowed by as a little toddler, let's say. In fact, John records in John chapter 2 that Jesus' first miracle was that he turned the water into wine, thereby indicating that he hadn't done any miracles before that. And so Jesus was looked and operated as a normal human being all the way through that point. Now, we also know that Jesus' childhood was normal from a supporting point in Luke chapter 4. And we're not going to turn there, but it's simply the point that after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness, he's led there by the Spirit, he then comes back to Nazareth, he goes there on the Sabbath, and he then uh, is handed the scroll, he reads the scroll of Isaiah, and then he sits down and all the eyes are fixed on him, and he says, today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if Jesus had performed miracles and had somewhat of a, of a supernatural childhood, then all the people there in Nazareth, where he grew up, would have said, yes, of course, this is the Jesus we know. He did all sorts of wonderful things these last 30-some-odd years that he's been in our midst, and of course this passage is being fulfilled, because he's the Messiah. We've seen him do all these things. But no, they... They're incredulous. They, they say, uh, is this Joseph's son? You mean this is the guy that lives down the road? He, he's saying that he's the Messiah? In other words, there was nothing particular about the way Jesus lived all those years in Nazareth that would have tipped him off to his neighbors and to uh, the people there in Nazareth that he was supernatural necessarily. And so we can deduce that Jesus' childhood was fairly normal. Now, we know that he was sinless. He did not possess any sin. He did not have a propensity or desire toward selfishness. He escaped the sin of Adam. He was the last Adam who was undefiled. And so he would have no doubt noticed a difference between other children as well as even adults. But what did Jesus' childhood look like? What, what, what would have it looked like for a normal Jewish boy to grow up in the first century? Well, we know that his education would have begun at home as the mothers were responsible for 
first teaching the children. And they would do that roughly for the first six years of, of life. So Jesus would have been instructed by Mary until he was about six or seven, and then he would have been sent to what's called the house of the book, which would have been connected with the local synagogue, and it was basically an elementary school for Jewish children. And there he would have been instructed in the things of the Torah or the law, the first five books of Moses. And education, you need to understand, was hugely important in Israel. The Israelites were people of the book. And even in those ancient times when they didn't have paper like we have it, they didn't have writing utensils like we have it, literacy was a big deal. In fact, Josephus, the great Jewish historian of the first century, wrote this. He said, Our ground is good, and we work it to the utmost. But our chief ambition is for the nurture of our children. For the nurture of our children. And a rabbi has, been sta- has stated the importance of education this way. He said, A father had as well bury his son as neglect his instruction. A father had as well bury his son as neglect his instruction. Education was hugely important for the people of Israel, and that would have applied to Joseph, to Mary, and to Jesus. And so he would attend this house of the book until he transitioned into adulthood, which would have taken place around 12 or 13. And that was determined by the father about when that transition would take place. For a boy to transition to adulthood, uh, there developed in Judaism a ceremony called a bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. And at this point, the boy is considered an equal of the synagogue with the other men. He would have been an equal with his father, a son of the commandment. But even though he was a, an adult and considered an equal footing in the synagogue, he was, he, they, they recognized that he still had some learning to do. He, uh, he was a, an adult apprentice, an apprentice adult. He was still learning the ways. And so Jesus, when he hit, uh, went through that bar mitzvah and, and became an adult, he would have then begun to learn the trade of his father, who was a carpenter or rather a, a craftsman, really is probably a better way to translate that, and could have involved working with all sorts of materials, not just with wood, maybe with stone even, and, and, and masonry. But it's at this point, 12 or 13, that Jesus would have been transitioning from his elementary education and beginning begin to learn the trade of his father. Now, some Jewish boys, at that transition point in life, if they had a desire to teach and they had religious aspirations, they would go to rabbinic school to sit under the rabbis. They would become a disciple of the rabbis and would learn to become a rabbi themselves. And so it's important to realize that this is, this is what Jesus has gone through going up to the point that where we find him in this passage where he is at age 12. And this means that Jesus either is about to enter adulthood, he's about to go through that transition to be an adult, or he already has. He's already gone through his bar mitzvah, and now he's considered an adult. And I don't think we can know one way or the other. The text doesn't make clear whether he's He's crossed that threshold yet or not. But the point is that, is that he's at a great transition point in life. He's at that hinge point where childhood is ending and adulthood is beginning. And it's there that, that this event takes place and Luke records it for us. And so the, the, point, the first point for us here this morning is that Jesus, the God-man, the Word who became flesh, 
lived a normal childhood, yet without sin. So in one sense, it was totally normal as a human, but it wasn't normal as, as fallen humanity is, like the rest of us. Now we know that there's, these verses don't teach us explicitly, but we're more pulling it in from the narrative around. But it's important that we read the text this way. It's important that we understand it as we come into even verse 41, that we realize that Jesus had this normal human childhood. Because you see this, we need a Savior who identifies with us. We need a Savior who understands what it's like to be human. And Jesus was this Savior in every way. He could identify with us in every single way, even as a little boy. And that means for you children that Jesus can identify with you. He knows what it's like to be a child. He knows what it's like to be three or six or nine or even 12. He knows what it's like and therefore he can be a savior for you too. Jesus was like us. He was a human and yet he was the perfect human and therefore could be our savior. So the first point, the first detail of Jesus' of Jesus's life that we see here and I want us to understand is number one that his normal childhood. But the second detail about Jesus in this passage is his devout family. The second detail is his devout family. Look, and we're going to see this in verses 41 through 43, the first part of verse 43. Look at it with me. He says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and he was 12, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Now, Luke records that the Holy Family would go to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of Passover. There were three feasts that the males were required to go to, to attend in Jerusalem. Passover in the spring, Pentecost in the summer, and Tabernacles in the fall. But Passover was the most significant. Passover was the feast that celebrated the, uh, and commemorated God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt from the hand of Pharaoh as recorded in the book of Exodus. And this feast was combined with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover was a one-day event, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days, and so it was eight days of festival-making that would take place there in Jerusalem. And it's in these verses, as we see that the, the, his parents would go to Jerusalem every year, and that it was here in this event, when Jesus was 12 years old that they went, that we learn of the devotion of Jesus' family in three specific ways. First, we see that they attended Passover every year. It was their custom. It was the custom of the feast. It was the, according to the law. And they were faithful to the law. They were faithful to obey the Lord as it related to the corporate worship of the nation. They all gathered in Jerusalem. And Joseph and Mary had made it a priority for their family that they would be there. They would all go and be a part of this. So, the attending of Passover, the obeying of the law, was a priority for them. The second way we see their devotion is that in the fact that Mary went as well. You see, women weren't required to go. It was only men that were required to go. But the fact that Mary attended and that she attended every year shows again that they took their faith seriously. They were a couple who were united in their desire to honor the Lord. They did it together. Both Joseph and Mary wanted to obey God and wanted to lead their family in the worship of the Lord. 
And so Mary was just as eager to go as Joseph was. And the third way we see their devotion is that the fact that Jewish pilgrims only needed to stay a few days through this festival. There was an allowance for them to go home after about three days, but the fact that the family stayed all eight days until this festival was completed is an indication, again, of their godliness. We see that in verse 43. It says, When the feast was ended and as they were returning, or as some translations say, fulfilling the days, meaning they filled out the days of the festival. They wanted the full effect. They wanted to be completely engaged for the entirety of that festival and to soak up all that there was. And so they stayed that whole time. So once again, we see that Jesus grew up in a godly family with godly parents. Were they perfect parents? No. They were sinners who failed often, as all parents do. But by God's grace, they had their priorities right. By God's grace, they had their priorities right. And folks, I believe that there's a principle here for us as well. We are reminded that faithfulness in the things of Christ yields great benefit for us and our children. Faithfulness in the things of the Lord yield great benefits for us and for our children. Faithfulness in personal reading of God's Word, in family devotions, in attendance to worship on Sundays, even if it's over a live stream, in attendance to small group or youth ministry, faithfulness in giving to the Lord's work. Faithfulness and regularity in all these things trains our families to prioritize the Lord in all of their lives. Jesus saw that modeled in his imperfect parents. And we, as imperfect parents, can do the very same thing for our children, modeling what godliness and faithfulness looks like. To know that we are imperfect, to know that we are sinners, dependent upon God's grace. And yet, we're going to do all that we can, by God's grace, to be faithful. And so, we see the the first two details about Jesus is that, number one, he had a normal childhood, and two, he had a devout family, a godly family. Thirdly, the third detail that we see is his early wisdom, his early wisdom. And we see this in the latter half of verse 43 through verse 47. Where it picks up saying that Joseph and Mary left, but the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, verse 43. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, and, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And here we come to the core of the narrative before us. While the story begins very routine, the fact that they go every, they went to the Passover every year, at 12 they go again, but the story doesn't end routinely. The text says that Jesus' parents leave the city after the feast was finished. And as we can see in this account, the families didn't travel alone. There were often thieves along the way that would take advantage of those who traveled alone. And so families, relatives, acquaintances, often villagers from the same village would travel together in groups. And it seems that the men and women often traveled separately. 
Uh, we don't know exactly their arrangement, but it seems that they were in different groups and it's a big enough group that you could suppose, in this case, that Joseph and Mary supposed that Jesus was with the other person. And they weren't close enough to even double-check it, to look over and see if Jesus was walking with Mary or if, or if he was walking with Joseph. They were lost in the crowd, lost in the group. And so it wasn't until they ended their walk for the first day that they found out that Jesus wasn't among them. But in fact, the text says that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents didn't know it. Now, this seems to be a deliberate action by Jesus. He no, knew, no doubt knew when his family was planning on leaving. All the relatives, all the people that he had traveled down to Jerusalem with were all packing up their stuff and getting ready to go. And yet he had a plan to stay. And this is a, a funny thing to see that he would stay behind and not communicate something to his parents. And I, and I think that this is potentially a non-sinful, innocent oversight that he didn't notify his parents. Now, he was completely human, remember, and he had to grow. He had to grow into things as humans, including social awareness, including um, how it is that we carry ourselves and what's appropriate. And so, I believe that here he needed to learn that it was it was necessary and important to notify his parents. He was clearly, as we're going to see, very driven, had something on his heart and on his mind. There was no deliberate deception that was ever being done. Remember, he's sinless. He did nothing out of selfishness, nothing out of a desire to deceive or to better himself. He only wanted to glorify God and only wanted to obey his parents. But somehow here, in that desire, he missed the wisdom or missed the opportunity to tell his parents. I also don't think the text gives us warrant to rebuke Joseph and Mary for leaving their child behind, as if how could you be a parent to leave your kid behind? I think their supposition, it says that they supposed him to be in the group. I think that supposition's reasonable, that that was how they traveled, that Jesus was responsible, that they all traveled in groups. Maybe Jesus was hanging out with the cousins uh, all through that week, and so to think that he was with somebody else was not that strange. But we can easily put ourselves in the shoes of Joseph and Mary here, can we not? To suddenly find out that you've left your child 20 miles behind you in Jerusalem is not a feeling that any parent likes to feel. As you can imagine, they begin searching for the boy, they ask around, he's not in the group, and so the next day they begin to trek back to Jerusalem. Now, in order to avoid Samaria in the middle of the country, Jewish pilgrims from Galilee would travel down the Jordan Rift, which is the valley that the Jordan River flows through, flowing from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And they would come down that rift, they would come to Jericho, and then head west, going up to Jerusalem. Now, that, tra that trek from Jericho to Jerusalem looks very flat on a map, but in actuality, there's a huge elevation change. Jericho is one of the lowest cities um, on the planet, it lies 900 feet below sea level. Jerusalem, on the other hand, is 2,700 feet above sea level, with just 18 miles between them. So for Joseph and Mary to turn around and return to Jerusalem, they had to climb 3,600 feet in 18 miles. And so it seems that while Jesus' parents were able to go from Jerusalem to Jericho in one day because it was downhill, 
it probably took them two days to go from Jericho to Jerusalem, to go back up the other way. Now, verse 46 says that it took three days to find him. I believe that this count, how did they count the three days? I believe it was once they began to look for Jesus. They looked for him, they didn't see him. And so it was two days to get back. And on that third day, they found Jesus in the temple. Jesus' parents find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers. And in Jerusalem, uh, there was a rabbinical school called the House of Midrash. And this was a place where the rabbis would all come and those who were the disciples of the rabbis would come sit around the, disciples, or around the rabbis' feet. And in fact, with the, the dustiness of the, uh, of the era, they, uh, it would say that disciples would, would uh, sit there powdering themselves in the dust of the feet of the wise. And Jesus comes and grabs a seat. He sits down with the rest of these disciples, sitting at the feet of the most respected teachers in the country, and becomes deeply engaged in learning. Now, he at least had three days of learning. He may have well had been learning more even while his parents were there. We don't know. But let's look at what it says about how Jesus interacted in this setting. It says, when the parents returned, they found him in the temple. Uh, Verse 46, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, we need to note carefully what he says here, because some have used these verses to say that Jesus was basically at age 12 lecturing all the rabbis and that he was teaching, uh, full on teaching, and and everyone was, was were astonished at his teaching. But it's not quite what the text says. Because it says his parents found him sitting among the teachers. He was sitting. And it says that he was asking questions. These, this is the posture of a student. This is the posture of a disciple, not the posture of a teacher. And so Jesus was here to learn. Jesus was here to, to sit and learn more about the Word of God and to learn more about his father, the one who wrote the word. And yet, verse 47 mentions that he gave answers, and people were astonished at his understanding and answers. And that might sound like he began teaching, but that would be to misunderstand the situation. Because, you see, the method of teaching at rabbinical schools was different than just a lecture format. You see, when Jesus had grown up in his elementary school in the, at the house of the book in the synagogue in Nazareth, the children were learned by, by rote. They were told what to learn and they had to memorize it verbatim. But those who went to rabbinical school, the method of ed- education changed, which uh, changed to involve questioning and debate. So a rabbi would put out a problem from the Torah or some issue of how to apply the Torah and then he let the, the disciples and the students duke it out, let them debate and, and one side would debate one side of the point and the other side would debate the other side and then we'd go back and forth. There's lots of discussion. And so this is the process that Jesus temporarily joins in on. And, and as he sits there and begins to answer the rabbi's questions, and then the rabbi asks further questions, and Jesus answers those questions, people are impressed. All who hear him are impressed at the answers and his understanding. 
And it's here that we see this early wisdom of Jesus. We know that later on in his life, in all that else is recorded in the Gospels, we see his wisdom on display time and time again. But here, even at age 12, we see this wisdom beginning to take root. It's as if the seeds of this oak tree have sprouted and have already, produ- is already, uh, already producing and growing to be a great tree. We know it's only going to grow bigger and stronger still. You see, Luke wants us to see the wisdom of Jesus. He doesn't want us to miss it. This passage is sandwiched, is bookended with statements of the wisdom of Jesus. Look at verse 40. The child, this is the verse just before our passage. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Then look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom. Luke here sandwiches this passage with statements about Jesus' wisdom. And then right here in the middle, he shows Jesus putting that wisdom on display. And not only is it in the middle of our passage, but Jesus puts this wisdom on display in the center of the the Jews' worship system. At the very center of the, of the, the religious center of the nation, the temple, Jesus is displaying this wisdom. Among the most amazing teachers of the nation, Jesus puts this on display. Truly, not since Solomon has Jerusalem seen wisdom like this. And we know that something greater than Solomon is here. So what's included in this wisdom? It says he grew in wisdom, he's filled with wisdom, he's displaying this wisdom before the teachers. What could we, what, what could we say that Jesus put on display there? I want to highlight a few aspects of what would be included in this wisdom. First is a profound knowledge of God's Word. A profound knowledge of God's Word. Jesus knew his Bible. He had studied it. He had sat under it. He had been studying his whole childhood and he soaked it up. He loved God's word. He loved the Old Testament. This was the word of God and he loved it with all of his soul. But not only did he love the word of God, but he truly loved the God of the word. See, the second thing that we see, not only only do we see a profound knowledge of God's word, but we see a perfect devotion to the Lord. Jesus had pure and undefiled devotion and love for God. He truly embodied the great Shema of Israel, which is, which is you shall love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He truly did that. The only person who has ever done that fully, Jesus did that. So he loved the word of God. He loved God. And on top of that, he also had, he also displayed great discerning application, profound knowledge of God's word, profound, great love of God. And then he was able to, to apply God's word discerningly. In other words, he didn't just rattle off a bunch of facts about God's word. He didn't just be able to quote a bunch of scripture, but he was able to take that and use it in the, in the life and, and apply it into life. And that's what wisdom is. It's the skillful use of knowledge. It's not just pure knowledge. It's the skillful use of it. And and, and Jesus, no doubt as rabbis throughout these conundrums, these these issues that that students and disciples would wrestle over, Jesus really untied all those knots. He he he, he, uh, cleared a path through all the conundrums that these rabbis threw out. We don't know if he was ever stumped. 
But we do know that he was learning, which means that there were still things maybe he didn't fully understand or things that he still needed to learn and to know he didn't know yet. But the fourth thing we see in his wisdom is authentic humility. You stick any other person in this scenario where he's 12 years old, a junior higher, they're answering questions of the most learned people of the nation. Think of the top professors and experts in their field. And as a junior higher, you're answering them and you're amazing these superiors. Any other human person who's 12 years old would have a head the size of a hot air balloon in that scenario. Our pride would not be able to handle that. And yet Jesus here, we know he has no pride. He has no self-interest. He cared only for the glory of God. He cared only for others. And he was there to learn. He just simply, honestly, and humbly wanted to learn the Word of God so that he could be the best tool in God's hand. And so, as we see the early wisdom of God here, let me say this to all of us, but particularly to our young men and young women. And that is this, that this wisdom that Jesus sought after, that he learned, that he displayed, is wisdom that's not only available to you, But God exhorts you to search for it. He exhorts you to go after it. Wisdom is to be sought after, particularly while you're young. This is to be your occupation. That yes, you can have lots of other interests. I believe Jesus had other interests besides the Word of God and besides wisdom. I think he liked to play games. I think he liked to go out with his siblings. I think there's other things that he liked to do. But there was a first priority in his heart, and that was that he would get wisdom. And young person, this is what God wants to be your preoccupation as well. That you spend this time as you're preparing for adulthood and that you search out wisdom. And listen, wisdom is not some bummer of a thing that you find and it it just crumbles in your hand and it's disappointing. The Bible makes it very clear that there is nothing you can value more highly than wisdom. Let me read you some potentially familiar verses from the book of Proverbs, chapter 4. Solomon writes, Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Guys, Jesus displays this beautiful crown and this graceful garland in this passage. Jesus prized wisdom highly, and it's beautiful. It's amazing. It astounded all those who saw it. And so Jesus was graced with this beautiful crown, and that crown can be yours as well. You can be be given this graceful garland upon your head if you would pursue wisdom Pursue with all your heart. There's nothing better for you to do than to pursue wisdom. I mean, think about this. If the Son of God needed to pursue wisdom, then how much more do we? I mean, in one sense, the case could be made that Jesus was the 
only person on earth who ever didn't need to pursue wisdom. But you see, Jesus came as a model for us to show us the way, to show us the path. He showed us what a godly person was to do, and that was to study the Word of God, to be like that Psalm 1 person who's deeply rooted by streams of living water, and to be, be uh, growing and meditating upon the Word of God. And so we need to be going to the Word of God. We need to be treasuring it. Now, this doesn't mean that we only read our Bible all day long like some monks. It just means that we need to spend time in the Bible. We need to ask God to help us. We need to spend time praying. God, please reveal yourself to me. Please give me wisdom. The Bible says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And that goes for all of us. If any of you lacks wisdom, and that's every single one of us, the Bible says let him ask God, who gives generously to all without making fun of us. God knows that we need wisdom. He wants to give it to us. And so let's ask. Oftentimes we don't have the wisdom that we need or that we want because we haven't asked for it. Let us strive to even be like this 12-year-old Jesus and have a hunger for the Word of God that we might pursue wisdom. Parents, we need to grow in this wisdom as well. Our children are taking cues from us. I believe that Joseph and Mary... Again, while not perfect, modeled in a humble way what pursuing wisdom looked like. They were people who loved God and loved the Word of God. And so Jesus grew up in that environment as well. We, as parents, can be good role models to our children of ones who prize wisdom above all else. Why would our children want to give their time and energy and make their first priority the possession of wisdom if they don't see us seeking to pursue wisdom every single day. May God give us grace to be a community of believers who put the wisdom of God as our first priority, all to His praise. Well, we've seen three details so far of Jesus in this passage. And that leads us to our fourth detail, our fourth detail that we see in this passage. And that is his intimate relationship with God. We've seen his, his normal childhood. We've seen his devout family. And we've seen his early wisdom. Here, number four, we see his intimate relationship with God. And we'll see this in verses 48 through 50. Verse 48 through 50 says, And when Jesus or sorry, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So here we see that his parents have been searching all over. They come to Jerusalem and they find him in the temple. And they realize that there's many around who are being amazed at their son, at the answers that he's giving. But as they watch the amazement of the rabbis and all the people that heard him, they themselves, they themselves are astonished. 
astonished, a different word than the amazement given the verse prior. This astonishment, I believe, is, is really this mixture of many emotions. They, for one, seem to be surprised to find him in the temple, almost like the last place they'd look was the temple. And they're probably shocked to see the amazement of the rabbis, to see these well-respected men in the Judaism, the experts in their field, smile with that, wow, this kid's got something special. But they are also seem to be dumbfounded that their son, who they know to be the son of the Most High, the heaven's son, God's son, to see that he seems so unconcerned at the pain that he's caused them. While they've done three days of walking, he's been sitting around in theological debate. And you get a sense from Mary as she talks to him, she's kind of going, are you kidding me, Jesus? Are you, are you seriously doing this while we've been doing this? Now, I would imagine here as it says that they were astonished, it says, and his mother begins to talk to him. I believe that my hunch is that they pulled Jesus aside and, and they, they tried to talk to him uh, individually. And they say, uh, and, and Mary asks a very understandable question, but a misplaced one. She says, son, why have you treated us so? Why have you treated us so? Now, the implication in this question is that Jesus has treated them wrongly. It's, it's a, really an, an accusation of wrongdoing upon Jesus. And again, this is an understandable reaction from any other mother in any other circumstance with any other child. But this wasn't any other mother and this wasn't any other child. This was Jesus. Now, as I said, I think that there very well could have been a, an innocent, non-sinful miscalculation by Jesus displayed here. But Mary's response is not accurate. Now, I don't know about any of you, but if, if you, ha as a kid, ever intentionally stayed behind at church, but I did when I was about 10 or 11 years old. My buddy and I thought it would be fun to be able to hide uh, in our church's gymnasium and make our families look for us. We thought it was super epic to be in church with all the lights off. And so we, we stayed there until everyone had locked up the building and everyone was gone, and we stayed in our hiding places. And when my father came looking for me about a half hour later, he had every right to ask me, Son, why have you treated us so? And that's because for me, my actions were selfish and they were stupid. But the same cannot be said for Jesus' actions here. He was the sinless child. He wasn't doing this out of selfishness. And as a sinless child, he only did what he thought was best for his parents. But this incident 
seems to have pushed Mary to a breaking point. I mean, she knows. She's heard the angels speak to her. She's heard shepherds recounted what the angels said to them. She's, she's heard Simeon and Anna. She, she's heard so many people talk about how special this child is and how it's from God and it's God's son. And yet, she just cannot get over the fact that Jesus has done this to her and Joseph. Jesus must have treated his parents wrongly here. And her accusation is backed up with the statement that she says, Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. She sees Jesus' actions as the cause of her great pain. Pain, definitely emotional pain, anxious, searching, great distress, but also physical pain. They just had to hike from Jerusalem back up to from Jericho up to Jerusalem in order to find Jesus again. Had to retrace their steps. And so in other words, she says, we are in great pain and Jesus, you've caused it. Well, Jesus replies here in verse 49, in total innocence and yet with deep sincerity. He understands the seriousness of the situation but he's on a different wavelength. He's thinking something totally different. And so he asks them, he says, verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now these are the first words of Jesus recorded anywhere in the Bible. The very first words of his life that are recorded. And there's a couple things that this statement, these statements reveal here. First, is that he genuinely thought that his parents would know where he would be. Maybe he'd gone to the temple throughout the feast. Maybe he'd talked about going to the temple. We don't know. But something in the 12-year-old Jesus' mind made it clear that his parents should have known exactly where he would be. But second, and most more importantly, Jesus reveals his understanding of his own identity and his own mission. And this really is the high point of this passage that Luke is trying to reveal to us. That in his study of the God's Word, in his growing wisdom, he has discerned who he is and realizes what he's called to do. It's most modern translations say, Do you not know that I must be in my Father's house? But older translations, like the King James, say that I must be about my father's business. And the Greek literally says, I must be in the things of my father. There's kind of a blank. I must be in the blank of my father. And that's where translators have added business or house or something else. But the emphasis here, I believe, is on location, which is why modern translations talk about being in the father's house. Because... He's emphasizing where his parents should have looked for him. They should have looked for, for me here, in my father's house. But there's also a concern on the mind of Jesus of doing the work that the father has laid out for him. He wants to be about his father's business in his father's house. You see, I believe Jesus had to grow into his messianic self-identity. In other words, it wasn't, he wouldn't come out of the womb knowing, oh, I'm the Messiah, I'm God's son, and I've come to die on the cross. 
This was an understanding he had to grow in over the years. And he learned it by studying the Old Testament, Old Testament by hearing the accounts of what took place around, surrounding his birth that he heard from Mary. And putting all those pieces together, he had to realize who he was and what he had come to do. And he slowly began to realize that he was the promised Messiah. But more than that, he, was, he didn't, wasn't just the, the Savior Messiah, he was God's Son. Because, and here he calls God his Father. He says, my Father, my Father. And, and we have to realize how radical this claim was. The calling God Father was only used 14 times in, the, in all uh, 39 books of the Old Testament. Only 14 times. But, but get this, the words, my father, are never on the lips of any Old Testament saints. It's typically talked about God being the father of the nation of Israel or something of the sort. But Jesus calls, addresses God as father over 60 times in the Gospels. Jesus makes a radical claim that he alone can call God his father. He realized that he was the son of God. He now knew that he was on equal status with the father. And this must have been an amazing reality for this young Hebrew boy. For him at 12 years old, this junior high boy, to, to realize that he is the divine son of God that he held this unique status with the Father and that he alone could call God my Father. Now, one of the reasons I think that Jesus was pulled aside by Mary and Joseph to have this exchange is that it's this kind of statement that would, have, that would enrage religious leaders later in his life. In other words, if the, if the rabbis at this time had heard Jesus say that this was my Father's house, they, would have, they could have accused him and charged him of blasphemy. I mean, think about the account in John chapter 5. It's Jesus has healed on the Sabbath, and, and they accuse him of this, and Jesus answered them and says, My, this is John 5, 17 through 18. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. My Father is working until now, and I am working. We are of equal status. We're both working Verse 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So I think Jesus here saying that this is my father's house was said to Joseph and Mary alone. Jesus here understands that God is his father and then he continues to nurture that understanding to the next decades of his life before he enters public ministry. Now, verse 50 says that his parents didn't understand what he said. They didn't understand the statement. And they are just like the disciples who later, a few decades later, would also not understand many of the statements that Jesus would say. And many of these things would come into play would, or, or would come into clarity after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And it would all become clear they'd understand what took place in those early days. I think that's the case here as well. But we see at the end of verse 51 that Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. She didn't forget about this. And yet it came back to play later for her. And so we see throughout this, the rest of the New Testament, 
of who Jesus was in relation to the Father and what that means for us. What does it mean for us that Jesus calls God my Father? Well, we know from John 1.18 that Jesus came to make the Father known. He came to exegete the Father, to reveal the Father to humanity. We would not know the Father apart from Jesus. God has revealed Himself, Hebrews 1 says, in many times, in many ways, through the prophets, but now in these last days, by His own Son. He's spoken by His Son. John 14.6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus is the way for all of sinful humanity to know this Father. And you see, the point is, for all those who trust in Jesus, believing His death, burial, and resurrection paid the price for their redemption, they are able to say with Jesus, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You see, in order for us to be able to say, Our Father, we've got to be in the Son. We've got to be in Christ so that we can become children of God and be able to call God our Father as well. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. That God loved the world in this way, that He sent His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have life in the Son, and it's through Him that we know the Father. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.19 In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God was reconciling sinful humanity to himself through Christ. You see, in order for you to call God Father, Jesus had to receive the wrath of as if he was a God-hater. Jesus had to be forsaken so that we could be accepted. And the good news is that the life and joy as a child of God is available to you today through the preeminent Son of God. For you to be a child of God and call God Father, you must come in repentance and faith to the true Son of God, the one who is about his Father's business. But the final detail, we've looked at four. We need to look at the fifth and final in this passage. Is the final detail about Jesus we learn in this passage is his submissive spirit. His submissive spirit. And we see this in verses 51 and 52. And he, Jesus, went down with them, his parents, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. And so our passage here ends by making it clear that Jesus was not using his identity as the Son of God as an excuse to be disobedient to his earthly parents. Even though he had a heavenly father that superseded the, uh, the authority of his earthly parents and his earthly father, it wasn't an excuse for him to disobey his earthly parents. He continued to walk obediently and submissively before them. I mean, Luke makes this explicit here so that no one could read this passage and think that, that Jesus just blew his parents off and did whatever he wanted. No, he was an obedient and dutiful Jewish son. But can you imagine how difficult it was for Jesus 
recognizing himself to be the Son of God, the one who's got a unique and intimate relationship with the Father, and increasingly knowing how sinful his parents were, and yet he continued to submit to them in spite of all of that. And this is a wonderful lesson for all of us. Whether you're a citizen submitting to a government, a wife submitting to her husband, or a child submitting to his parents, sin and failure in the authority figure gives no excuse for rebellion. Submission is always called for unless the authority calls us to do something against God's will, against God's revealed will in the Bible. Submission is always called for. Sin in the authority figure is not an excuse for disobedience or for rebellion. Jesus is the perfect example of that as he modeled it. Now, this whole account, this whole story, when Jesus was 12, was treasured up in the heart of Mary. Luke makes it clear. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. She remembered it long after it happened, and it made sense to her later. And I believe this statement most assuredly uh, reveals that Mary was, if not the, the primary, one of the sources for this account. Where did Luke find out that this happened? Well, he talked to Mary, because Mary treasured it up in her heart, and she remembered these details. Luke says that he consulted many sources. Mary was definitely one of them. And then he closes out this whole section, and really the whole, this is the end of the whole first section of his book, this telling of how Jesus came from heaven and, and became man and appeared on earth before he launches into his ministry, as he will, in chapter 3. And he says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. He grew in wisdom as he studied the Word of God. He grew physically as a normal human would, increased in stature, and he increased in favor, in grace with God and man. He, being the perfect man who loved God and loved others, couldn't help but, but being favored and enjoyed and loved by those around him, which is in stark contrast to what is going to happen in his ministry, is that he will not be favored by man. He will be rejected by men and put upon a cross. But here in his growing up years, as he moves into adulthood, he increase, is increased in favor with God and man. And so do you see how this one account of Jesus' boyhood, we see him operating as the God-man. We see him operating as a man, as a, as a human, in that he had a normal childhood. He, he grew up, he had parents, he had to submit to those parents. He had to study the Word of God. He had, to, he had to learn it. He had to read it. He didn't just download it from heaven. He had to do normal things. He had to grow. He had to learn. He had to sit under teachers. And yet he was the God-man. He had an intimate relationship with the Father. He was sinless. He was unlike any other person. He was the Son of God. And it's only because He is both God and man that He can be your Savior today. It's only because of this wonderful reality of the Word becoming flesh that you and I can say, Our Father who is in heaven. And let's close by doing that now. Our Father who is in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus of Nazareth. We thank you that you in your abundant grace sent your Son. That he would come 
and live a perfect life, a life that we couldn't live, that he might fulfill all righteousness, and that he would then die upon the cross, bearing the wrath that we deserve for our sin, so that simply through repentance and faith, we can come to Christ, be adopted as your children, and to be able to cry out, Abba, Father. We praise you for the giving of your Son. We praise you, Jesus, for the life that you came and lived, that you came and identified with us. You came and walked upon this earth, this dirt, that you, that you identified with us. And Father, we ask that you please help this wonder of the incarnation to continue to thrill our souls for all of eternity, starting today. And it's in your Son's mighty name we pray. Amen. Go in peace, beloved. May these truths bless your soul this week.